Please be seated. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 27, verses 1 to 10. That's where we're going to be this morning, Matthew 27, 1 to 10. When we're young, we, we desire more and more responsibility. I have three young kids. They continually remind me how much more responsibility they want. Uh, when one gets responsibility, they all want the responsibility. They want more and more responsibility as they grow older because that comes with more freedom, right? As the more responsibility you get, the more freedom you get, the more trusted you get, the later you get to stay up, the more movies you get to watch, that kind of thing. I used to feel the same way when I was younger, and I wanted more responsibility, more ownership. The older I got, then I got ownership. Bought a house, bought a car, things like that, and what I realized is that ownership means you own the problems, too. There's a whole host of problems that come with home ownership. You get a home, and you're like, ah, it's my domain. This is my yard. What's that leak? Where's it coming from? I don't know, but you own it. All the problems are yours. You own it all. You can't just get a little bit of ownership. you got to get the whole thing. And it comes with all the problems as well. In our passage this morning, it's a familiar passage to all of us. Judas is going to kill himself. And what we're going to see in this passage, and we're actually going to see this in the coming week as well, next week, that everyone in these passages tries to rid themselves of the responsibility, try to rid themselves of the problem. They try to rid themselves of the innocent blood of Jesus Christ that is shed. Let's look at Matthew 27, 1-10. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death, and they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the thirty pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, What is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and went and hanged himself. But the chief priest, taking the pieces of silver, said, It's not lawful to put them into the treasury since it is blood money. So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took 30, the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him, of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this word that's been read is difficult to think through. It's difficult to watch what's happening here. And yet it is incumbent upon us to understand it and to apply it. And we pray for your help in doing so. We require the Spirit's help to understand your word and to apply it to our lives. I pray for each and every person in this room, Christian or not, that you would break through the heart and apply this word to their life. We pray these things in Jesus' name. 
Amen. Now, there's a big question that's been going on in the Word as we've been dealing with it over the last few weeks. It's overriding this part of the Gospel that Matthew is, go- is bringing up, and he's, he's been bringing up, and he will continue to bring it up again next week, is who is guilty of shedding the blood of Jesus? We're in the middle of a series of trials that we've seen over the past couple of weeks. The first trial we saw was Jesus before the Sanhedrin. He's standing on trial. He is facing his accusers. And his accusers are laying on him every kind of charge. And in one way or another, he, he doesn't respond. He remains silent to a lot of charges. And it seems to convey some manner of guilt on him. It certainly doesn't alleviate the charges that they're bringing. And then, when he does speak, he gives a response that is intentionally, you might say, inflammatory to Caiaphas. The high priest Caiaphas tears his robes and he says, look, he is committing blasphemy. So you're kind of left with the question at the end of that trial, Jesus didn't defend himself at all. Is, is he responsible for his own blood? Maybe he's the one that's responsible. He should have just said something. So maybe he's responsible. The second trial we saw last week is the trial of Simon Peter. He is also facing accusers of some sort, is he not? He follows Jesus into the courtyard of Caiaphas, the high priest, and, and there around him are the people gathered with their accusations. You were following this man. You were following this man. I saw you with Jesus. Your accent, you cannot deny your accent. You're clearly from Galilee. You have to be connected to Jesus in some way. And they're all accusations that he denies, denies, denies. He's standing on the witness stand there and facing his accusers, and he denies all of them. And then, of course... The crow sounds and Peter weeps bitterly. The rooster, I should say, sounds and Peter weeps bitterly. But it's not just Peter. The rest of the disciples are implicit in the trial, are they not? They've all run away. Where are they? Well, they didn't even stand trial. They just didn't show up at court, I guess you might say. Are they not maybe responsible? In their denial... Are they not responsible for the blood of Christ? Finally, we have the trial of Judas Iscariot, the betrayer. Cold-hearted, wicked, the Bible calls him son of hell, that betrayed the one and only son of God. Jesus says about about Judas, it would have been better if he had not been born. He said that in chapter 26, just a few verses before where we are now. It would have been better if he hadn't been born. Well, surely he's guilty and some way responsible for the blood of Jesus. There are lots of questions around the responsibility for the bloodshed of the innocent Son of God that we have to answer this morning. And spoiler alert, they're all responsible. But more than just them, the chief priests are obviously going to be responsible Pilate, we're going to see, is going to try to wash his hands of the blood. All of the things that we're looking at, all of the people that we're watching, they're all trying to get rid of the blood that's on their hands. Judas says, I've slain innocent blood. The chief priests say, this money has blood on it. It can't be ours. 
Pilate next week is going to wash his hands of the blood. Everybody is wanting to diffuse responsibility for slaying the innocent man. But whose hands have the blood on them? First thing we see in this passage is that Jesus is handed over by sins of denial, betrayal, and conspiracy. All three of them coming together in once to hand over the Son of God. Now, the chief priests have decided already on Jesus' guilt. There's no question about that. They've decided as far back as the beginning of chapter 26 that they're going to kill him. In the Gospels, even earlier than that, they've convened and they've decided that he's going to die. They didn't really need a trial for that, to be honest with you. They didn't have to come together to try Jesus to decide that he's guilty and that they want to put him to death. They need to figure out what charge he's guilty of. That's the problem. See, in the land that they live in, they can't deliver the death penalty. Rome's the only one that can do that. And so it's not a matter of whether or not they feel like Jesus is guilty. They know he's guilty. They know they want him dead. They've got to figure out what they can do to manipulate the Roman government to put him to death. So they've got to convene, as they do here in verses 1 and 2, they convene early in the morning. And why do they convene? Not to establish the charge of what they're going to kill him with. No, no, no. They convene to figure out what they're going to tell Pilate. What are we going to take to Pilate? What are we all going to say? Now, the reason that they kill him is pretty clear from the other Gospels, like John chapter 11, verses 47 to 48. It says, So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Now, as unbelievable as, it might, as you might find it for a group of priests, chief priests, in fact, to come together and kill the Son of God, their decision to kill Him might even make that worse. Their logic that they use might make it worse. In the context of the passage that we just read out of John, do you know what he's just done? He's just raised Lazarus from the dead. He's just raised a dead man from the grave. Four days he laid there. He said, Lazarus, come forth. And this dead guy walked out of the tomb. And their decision is, hey, if he goes on like this, people might believe he's the Messiah. Never occurring to them that, you know, he might just be the Messiah. How many people do you know that can raise people from the dead? It's possible that he is. But their logic is, no, not they've got a point. But, well, if we let him go on, then Rome's going to come in and kill us. The reason that I think that's important is because it tells you why they decide how to represent Jesus to Pilate. Luke tells us in 23.2, Luke 23.2, And they began to accuse him, saying, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. That's the charge that they're bringing to Pilate. They're going to say, look, his, the very fact that he's going around healing people and bringing people back from the dead is proof that he's trying to establish himself as king. That might get Pilate's attention enough to put him to death. The people actually are going to believe that he's the Messiah, which means that he is the anointed one. That's literally what Messiah means. 
that he's from David. He's trying to establish himself as our king. And if look, if Rome gets wind of that, then they're going to come in and crush us and take all our power. So let's hand him over as an insurrectionist, someone who is against Rome, so that we can live to see another day. So they agree on a charge in the wee hours of the morning, and they head over to Pilate's house to hand him over for a second trial. But it's here that I want you to notice something about this passage that if you're paying really close attention as you read, will stand out as a little odd. Judas comes back onto the scene you see there in verse 3. He comes back onto the scene. And where does he go to? Well, verse 3 tells us that he goes to the chief priests. Who are, where are they at right now? Well, they're with Jesus on the way to Pilate's house. That's not where they are in Matthew 5, in Matthew uh, 27, 5. There, they're in the temple, which tells us something very important about this passage about Judas hanging himself. It's that it's out of chronological order. It's not in the timeline that has been established. I've said this many times. Matthew is not concerned with your chronology. He's not concerned with presenting to you a YouTube video of how the events transpired. What he's doing is taking these events and putting them together theologically so that you might understand a point that he's making. He puts Judas is hanging himself and feeling the guilt of Jesus' blood right after Peter denying him and right before the chief priest deciding what to do with the blood money. And right in the middle of all of that, the chief priest and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. You see, legally... This is not the trial that matters. Legally, the trial of Jesus before the Sanhedrin does not matter at all. Has no power to do anything. They could decide all day long that he deserves crucifixion, and nothing is ever going to happen about it. It's not the trial that actually matters. The trial that matters is the one that happens next week where he stands before Pilate. Pilate is the one that gets to decide his fate. But what Matthew has done by putting all these together is to help us see, no. The trial that mattered is the trial of the people that are supposed to believe when the Messiah comes and rejected him. The trial that mattered is the one of the disciple who followed him and said he would follow him to his death and denied him and ran away. The trial that mattered is the one of his disciple who was following him and decided instead on 30 pieces of silver over the life of Christ. The trial that mattered was the one of the chief priests who were supposed to be a priesthood to the rest of the world. That are supposed to show God to everyone else. And yet when the very Messiah stood in front of them, raising people from the dead and walking on water and multiplying loaves and fish and doing all kinds of things... They sought instead to put him to death. Who has blood on their hands here? Who's the one that is ultimately responsible for the death of Christ? Does Peter and the disciples, do they have blood on their hands? Oh yeah, absolutely. What about Judas, the denier? Yeah, him too. What about the chief priests? who arranged this kangaroo court. Oh yeah, they've got blood on their hands too. 
But I want you to notice now what they try to do with the blood on their hands. They're doing everything they can to scrub it off in any way possible, and it just won't come clean. What we see is that Judas's guilt cannot be resolved through penance. It can't be resolved through penance. He seems to actually recognize his sin. Do you see that? In, in verses 3 to 5, he seems to recognize that he has blood on his hands, that he has sin. And, and Matthew's going to draw our attention to statements like this because the guilt over the blood of Jesus, it seems, is not so easily absolved. It can't be gotten rid of like that. Judas knows the blood is on his hands, and the chief priest will mention this money has blood on, on it, and so that they can't take it. We don't want it on our hands. Pilate, of course, is going to try to wash it from his hands. The Jews then, toward the end of 27, are going to say in verse 25, His blood be on us and on our children. That's how that's going to end. So most everyone is trying to get the blood off their hands. And Judas at this point realizes what he's done and he wants to get rid of it. And he actually has some sort of regret. It says in verse 3 that he changed his mind. But you notice that it's not the normal word that's used for changed his mind. Normally we use the word repent. That literally means to change one's mind. But the meaning of the word that's used here is not repent. The meaning of the word is to have regrets about something in the sense that one wishes it could be undone. More like a regret than a repentance. When he comes to them and he says, I've sinned, what do they say to him in response? How's that our problem? You understand that? Just pause for a second. Who are these people that say that? Oh yeah, they're priests. Aren't you priests? What do you mean? Sin is not your problem. Sin is the only reason you exist. You realize that? Think about what they're telling him. Oh my goodness. Here is a man, seemingly broken by his sin, comes to his priests for directions on what to do, and they say, Keep walking. It's not my problem. Now, I don't know if you've ever had a pastor say that to you. I certainly hope you haven't. Uh, not, usually not a week goes by that I'm not having a conversation with someone in this congregation about sin. Sin in their own life, sin that they've experienced, sin that somebody has done against them, sin, 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 sin. And I hope that you never hear me say, how's that my problem? In fact... I hope you never hear a pastor ever say that. Most every pastor that I know of is in the pastorate specifically to help people deal with sin. That's the reason we're here. We want to preach about it. We want to talk about it. We want to counsel about it. We want to direct people to the Word to deal with it. We want to do all of those things to help people with sin. That's the reason we were pastors to begin with. Here they say, how is that our problem? So if you're keeping score at home, these priests arranged this deal. They created it. They, you might say, ensnared Judas into it. 
with the allurement of 30 pieces of silver. And then when he took the bait, they said, congratulations, too late to do anything about it. See you later. Keep walking. Two people who are responsible for the blood of Jesus are literally right now trying to pass the buck. Or the silver coins, as it were. Judas and the priesthood. Judas thinks he has nowhere left to turn, and so he goes and he hangs himself. And Luke tells us in the book of Acts about Judas in verses 118. says, falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. I hate to be graphic, and I'm not trying to be, but it's the Word of God after all. So the word headlong here has also been associated and is similar to the word swollen. And so it seems as though Luke might be saying that he's falling swollen, he burst open, which seems to fit quite nicely. But it could be also that he just, what, what he's describing there is that he's literally hanging in the place where he's hung, and he lays there for so long that he eventually falls and burst open. Now, um, that's graphic and that's gory, and I'm sorry to have to do that, but a lot of people kind of jump on that as some sort of contradiction, I don't think it is. But Judas has a kind of sorrow over his sin, all right. But it's a sorrow that, as Paul pointed out in 2 Corinthians 7.10, that leads to death because it's not the kind of sorrow that actually leads to repentance. What kind of outlet does his grief have if it's not repentance? Well, the only outlet that's left is penance. Not repentance, but penance. Penance is a form of self-punishment. For the Roman Catholic Church, they're known to prescribe penance in response to sin. It's one of the seven sacraments of the Roman Catholic Church. It's typically in the form of prescribed prayers, but it could be in a number of different avenues that they prescribe to the person who comes and confesses sins to to their priest. And the point is that Judas' solution to the blood of Jesus being on his hands is essentially to punish himself as a final way to get away from it. You can picture Judas, certainly, with the guilt of Jesus' crucifixion on his hands, on his mind, the voice of Satan prattling around between his ears, and he's accusing him of the atrocity of killing the Son of God and driving him to insanity. He quickly gets to the point where there's only one conceivable way to make it all stop. To no longer hear of the voice of Satan rattling around between his ears, much less feel the guilt on his own conscience. And the only way that he can see is to eventually take his own life. Today, it's not difficult to see people struggling with the same kinds of sins as Judas and struggling in the same way as Judas. And sure, there are plenty of people that commit suicide for a host of of reasons, some related to Judas here and some not related to Judas here. But I don't think that you have to go to see suicide to see people that are struggling in the same way that Judas is struggling. Judas is seeking to pay for his sins, a way of of giving back, of doing something that might have some sort of absolution from his sins. And obviously finding No forgiveness, Judas then seeks to punish himself. The problem is, of course, that he can't pay with his own blood for his sins. That's impossible. 
Uh, Would you believe me that if I said there's many in this world and many in our churches tempted to deal with their sins the same way that Judas deals with them? Seeking some sort of thing that they might do, some sort of restitution. While they might not be considering suicide, they certainly wallow in self-pity, wallow in depression, and it all comes along with a lifestyle of sin. And there's this attitude that follows our sins often, and it plagues frequently members of churches all across this country, all across this world. That every time they sin, they look at themselves in the mirror and they think, how could God possibly love me? This is now the time Surely, where he's sick of hearing from me. Do you ever notice that sometimes in your life, after sin, after you're convicted of sin, you get to the next step, and it just seems to beget another sin instead of bringing you back to repentance? Do you ever notice that sometimes the conviction over that sin leads you into ignorance rather than confession? Rather than coming back to the Lord and begging for mercy and confessing the sin that you've committed, rather than actually having to hear yourself utter across your own lips in prayer what it is that you've done, rather than confess that to the Lord, bringing yourself to the point where you you can even hear yourself say what you've done, rather than do that, you would just ignore it entirely. You just think to yourself, surely he's done with me by now. Having the guilt of sin in your mind and the voice of the accuser prattling around in your head. Can you believe what you've done? Can you you hear yourself? Well, surely you've messed up now. God doesn't love you. How could he possibly love you? You've really done it now. All it does is lead to more sin. The sin begets sin. And eventually it's been so long since you've come to the Lord in prayer and confession over your own sin that, well, now I'm just a stranger. Even if I did feel conviction, how could I possibly ever get there? But do you understand what you're doing? You're doing the same thing that Judas did. Perhaps there's not as much finality to it. Perhaps you're not going to the point of suicide. But the logic is the same. The trail is the same. God could not possibly want to hear from me at this point. You wallow in your own sorrow. Your blood cannot atone for your own sin, nor can your self-loathing. The only thing that can actually cover your sin is the death of Christ, the very thing that Judas is guilty of. That's the only thing that can lead to his forgiveness, is the sin that he's actually committed. How ironic is that? For Judas, he was confident that the snap of the noose was the last thing that he would ever hear of his own sin. But was he surprised when on the other side of death he opened his eyes in judgment and there faced the wrath of God? Now we turn to the chief priest and we see that their guilt can't be absolved through righteous works. They can't do anything about it. Their guilt cannot be 
absolved through righteous works. Now, now they're concerned with what is lawful. Do you see that in the text? In 6, starting in 6, they're, they're concerned with what is lawful. Well, obviously. I mean, we've killed this guy who is innocent. The Messiah to the Jews, we put him to death. But take the blood money that was paid for it and put it in the temple treasury? Now that's a bridge too far. Where are my pearls that I might clutch them? We can't have that money staining the temple treasury. The blood can't be on our hands. So instead, they take counsel together. I know, they say, let's form a nonprofit organization, a 501c3. And here's what we'll do with the money. We'll use it for a good deed. Here's what we'll do for the community. We'll buy a field. And with that field that's purchased, we'll just bury all the dead people that don't have tombs. All the people that travel to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is a highly trafficked city for people that are Jews and people that are non-Jews. So anybody that's coming here that happens to come here and just drop dead of a heart attack, well, we'll take them and we'll put them in this field. And we'll just bury them there. The town will see that as a good deed. We won't have to take the blood money and put it in the temple treasury so we won't be guilty of the blood of Christ. It's a great idea. Here's our nonprofit organization. You want to invest? Sounds like a good pitch. Now, you could potentially evaluate their actions a number of different ways, and it's certainly consistent with the Old Testament to be generous to the sojourner that's traveling there. Look at Leviticus 19, 33 to 34. When a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. See, their deed is, is, is good. It's a good work. We've turned this whole ship around. You see, we're just obeying the law, after all. We're treating the sojourner the way we would treat our fellow brethren. We're burying them in the field. And all of it is an attempt to wash their hands clean of the blood of the Son of God, lest it stain the temple treasury. Further, they know it's blood money. Look at the text. It's right there. They know that it's blood money. It has the blood of an innocent man on it. And they can't let that be put in the temple treasury. But to do something good to the community with it? Well, pff, absolutely. The community will benefit. That takes care of it. So Matthew tells us at the end of this passage that this is a fulfillment of prophecy. And, and he says it, it fulfills what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. And then he quotes... Zechariah eleven thirteen. Then the Lord said to me, Throw it to the potter, the lordly price at which I was priced by them. So I took the thirty pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. All right. Now, can we can we get down to brass tacks here? Can we just can I just level with you? It's a really complicated piece here in the text. Look at it. Look at it really closely. Some of you may already notice the problem. Do you notice the problem? He says what was, quoted, what was stated by the prophet Jeremiah, and then he proceeds to quote Zechariah. Well, how can that be? Do you also notice there's another issue? I read from Zechariah. I just read it. 
passage that from Zechariah. You can put it back there on the screen if it's not. Yeah, there it is. So that's the verse from Jeremiah, or Zechariah. You'll notice that what he says in Matthew and what is here in Zechariah is also a, a kind of bad quote. I mean, if you're going to quote somebody, we're always told to quote them. If you put quote marks around something, you're going to just quote them. Say exactly what they said. And Matthew gives us a butchered quote here. This isn't quite what Zechariah said. It's about maybe 80% what Zechariah said, and 20% of it comes from somewhere else. Do you know where that somewhere else is? It's in Jeremiah. So, there's, I see some of <laughs> So what he's done here is he's actually woven together two pieces from Old Testament prophecy. One is almost a direct quote from Zechariah, and one is kind of a hodgepodge of different themes that pop up throughout Jeremiah, especially in Jeremiah 19. And so it gets really confusing as to what he's just done. And so it's led some Christians to say, perhaps there's some sort of misunderstanding. We believe the Bible to be inerrant and infallible. Here, here he said the prophet Jeremiah, and then he quoted Zechariah. There has to be some sort of misunderstanding that we just don't know yet. And then it's led some non-Christians to, to say, see, right there, there's an error in the text. As it turns out, Matthew has combined a partial citation from Zechariah and some themes from Jeremiah 19 together into one passage that has some word references to Jeremiah 19, makes it really complex, and it's only in the advent of Bible software that we're able to figure some of this stuff out. All right? So what Matthew does here is really complex, but I'm going to keep it, keep it simple as we explain it. And D.A. Carson has done a lot of work on this, very detailed work. I can even send this to you in an email if you want it. And I would happily do that, and we can discuss it later. I'm not going to go through all of it, but just to explain it in brief. In Zechariah, Yahweh is rejected by the people, and they reject Zechariah, actually. And they set a price on him. They basically determine what he's worth. And they determine that he's worth about 30 pieces of silver. And do you know what 30 pieces of silver is equal to in Old Testament times? The price of a slave. Basically, what, Jer what Zechariah is worth to them is the price of a slave. And so in both Matthew and in Zechariah, the commonality there is that Zechariah and uh, Judas both go into the temple and they fling silver across the temple floor. Now, in both Matthew and Zechariah, that, that, that um, silver is flung and it purchases something unclean. In Zechariah's day, the silver is taken and melted down, turned into an idol. And in, in Matthew's day, when Judas flings it, they take the silver and they purchase a burial ground for it, also unclean. All right. Now, in Jeremiah, the rulers have left Yahweh and have forsaken him completely, and they've taken up the worship of foreign gods. And so what Jeremiah is told to do is take a potter's vessel, hence the potter, takes the potter's vessel 
and he goes down to the valley of Hinnom, which is right outside the temple. It's the area where they burn trash. It's the area where pagan sacrifices have taken. It's the area that Jesus refers to as hell, where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. He takes the leaders of the Jews down to the valley of Hinnom, and he takes the potter's vessel, and he smashes it in pieces. And he says that eventually Judah and Jerusalem are going to be broken apart like this potter's vessel. And so what Matthew is trying to do here, and the point that he's making, is that when the leaders of Israel have rejected Jesus the Messiah, they have brought and then purchased the field of the dead, their rejection of his leadership over them is part of what's going to bring about God's judgment on the nation. Both of those two Old Testament texts, Jeremiah and Zechariah, are both pointing to that exact same day when this is going to happen. So he does it in a way, I get it, it's very confusing and it's difficult to wrap your mind around. But what he's saying is, this is the culmination. When you were told by the Old Testament prophets that you were going to be judged that the day of the Lord was coming, that it was going to sweep through your land and it was going to break you apart, destroying Jerusalem and Judea. That day is now. And the reason that He's coming is be precisely because you have put to death the, blood, the, the Son of God. The blood of the Son of God is on your hands. And there's nothing you can do to wash yourself clean of it. There's nothing you can do to cleanse your hands. So then the question is, who is guilty of the blood of Jesus. Is Judas guilty? Absolutely. Well, he betrayed the Son of God. He's absolutely guilty. What about the chief priests who arranged this whole deal then wouldn't even help a person in their sin? Are they guilty? Yeah. Jeremiah and Zechariah are both pointing to their day when judgment is going to come to them. What about Peter, the denier? Is he responsible? Well, of course. So are the disciples who swore they would fight to the death and then they fled to preserve their own life. What about Jesus? God? Is he responsible? We saw in the garden, didn't Jesus say, nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will? And then all of this happened? Jesus remained silent in trial. Is Jesus, is God responsible for the death of his son? Well, you would think surely not until you get to the book of Acts. And the very one that denied him is the one that says in Acts 4, 27 to 28, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Well, we'd have to say, yeah. That all of this was according to the predestined plan of God. That He actually planned for the death of His Son and all of the ways that it would come about. Peter's denial, Judas' betrayal, the chief priest collaboration. He predestined all of it, and the only one who didn't have sin in his heart when he did it was God Himself. Why? Well, because if you read back at the beginning of the book of Matthew, in chapter 1, verse 21, he says, You shall call his name Jesus, 
for He will save His people from their sins. God is the only one who in planning this whole thing had no evil in His heart. That can't be said of anyone else in the process besides God the Father and God the Son. They're the only ones that in this whole process had no ill intentions, had no evil intentions, meant to bring about its good. And who was it good for? Well, then we'd have to say, who else is responsible for Jesus on the cross? I may not have been in Judas' shoes. I may not have been in the chief priest's shoes. I may not have been in Peter's shoes. But I'm guilty along with them. Jesus' blood is actually on my hands too. Because he says, your sin was what he died for. That's the very reason he came. If I wasn't lost, he wouldn't come to seek and to save me. But he did. So the blood of Christ is actually on my hands too. In fact, if you are in this room and you have ever sinned, if you're outside of this room and you've ever sinned, the blood of Jesus is actually on your hands too. Nearly every Sunday we have in this room people who do not believe in Jesus. And let's be honest that the real hang-up is one of a few possibilities. One, you don't believe that when you die you will face the throne of God. It's possible. Two, you consider the sins of your past to be too great for God to forgive. It's a hurdle. Three, you figure that if there is a God, and that if you do meet Him one day, He might be pretty impressed with you. And you're kind of a big deal. That you might get up there and he might weigh your good works from your bad works and he might say, look, you're a pretty good person. I mean, you tried to do what was right for the most part. You sought good for people. You raised your kids. You provided for them. You loved your wife. I mean, you're a pretty moral person. And so, yeah. In fact, if you go up to someone on the street and you ask them, what is the gospel? Do you believe that when you die, you will, face the, the, you will face the Lord in judgment? What will he say? If he asks you, why should I let you into my heaven? What will you say? I guarantee you the answer to that question that you will receive 99% of the time is, well, yeah, I mean, I try to do what's right. I, I try to be a good person. There are Christians in here who wallow in self-pity over their sin. And they think that their goodness, the things that they do that are good, their righteous works, maybe put them in better standing than the person sitting next to them in the pew. I mean, have you looked at him? He doesn't even wear slacks on Sunday. Surely when I dress up for the Lord with my best, he's impressed by that. Well, if your righteousness is filthy rags, what are your filthy rags? All of us have bought into this kind of lie of moralism. Somehow it saves us. You remember the scene, the Last Supper, in John, all the disciples come in. Jesus plays the host. 
And normally the host is the one that's conducting the festivities. The servants are the ones that come in and wash the feet of those participants who come into the feast. And when they walk in, they see not a servant, but Jesus, the host, taking off his garments and wrapping them around his waist, bending down on his knees, and washing the feet of his disciples. And he gets to Simon Peter. Love Simon Peter. He speaks what we're all thinking. John tells us this interaction happened in John 13, 6-9. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but my hands and my head. Cleanse every part of me. Wash me to the uttermost. See, it's not enough to have the blood of Christ on your hands. We've all got that. It's got to be from the tips of your head to the tips of your toes. And everywhere in between. Christ has to wash all of you. The only way that that can happen is if you come completely clean. See, you're guilty for the blood of Christ, but you might not think you are right now. And so you stand before God on Judgment Day, and you realize that you've been guilty the whole time. The problem is, you have an intercessor. You have someone that can wash you clean now. But it requires repentance. It requires an understanding that you, in fact, do need the blood of Christ every single day. It requires an admission of guilt. I have done it. I'm guilty. I recognize my sin. I'm responsible for it. Whether it's the crucifixion of Christ, how I treated my wife or my kids, what I've done in my job or my school, regardless of what it is, I've got to own it. I've got to own it every single day. If we say that we have no sin, the truth is not in us. We make God out to be a liar. But if we confess our sin, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. It's not good enough to have the blood of Christ on your hands. It's got to be everywhere. He's got to cleanse you to the uttermost. That means there's no corner of your heart that can remain dark, that can remain hidden. There's no part of your heart that you can hide from those around you that you've sinned against. You've got to own that too. Husbands, wives, there's no part of your heart that can be hidden in darkness that you don't disclose to your spouse. Christians, there's nowhere you can go that he doesn't see you. But the beauty of the gospel is that he bids you to come to him, to confess. So it's true what we sing. All who are broken, all who are weary, all who have sinned, lift up your face. Come as you are. 
But you can't stay like that. You got to own it all. You can confess your sin to him. You can tell him of your guilt. And he promises you forgiveness. And as weird as that feels, that's it? For all that I've had and all that I've done, I can just be forgiven? That's it? Just confession? Yeah. It turns out trusting in that forgiveness is one of the hardest things you'll ever do. You will continually walk day by day thinking, surely there's more. That's it. That's eternal life. That's it. Yeah. Trusting in the blood of Christ as the atoning sacrifice, payment for your sin is all that's required. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would convince us of your goodness to us in Christ. That you would convince us to trust in Christ. Christian or non-Christian, in this room, I pray that you would convince us to trust in Christ. I doubt it every single day. Why do I doubt it? I'm so tempted to doubt that it's enough. I pray that you would convince me. I know that there are others like me. They're so tempted day in and day out to be convinced that it's not enough, that more must be required. Convince them too. I pray that we may live as gracious people because we are convinced of the grace that you have shown to us in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing.